So I'm going to need your help this morning. I've got too much to cover and too little time. It's my own fault. This is a really significant section of scripture that we're going to be going over this morning. And instead of going over it, uh, diving deep into it, which is often our habit, we're going to stand back from it and talk about it kind of overarching thematically to sort of give us the framework for understanding it. And, and I'm going to encourage you to dig into this passage of Scripture later for yourself because it is, it's really epic. This is the second section of Jesus' epic sermon found in Matthew 5 through 7. So last week we started a series of conversations we called The Good Life. What is it? How do we get it? And we looked at the introduction to Jesus' epic sermon. It's sometimes called the Sermon on the Mount because of where he delivered it. It's recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. And we said that Jesus' perspective is completely inverted from the perspective of the world around us. If you were here last week, you may remember hearing me talk about a reference, a Navy pilot who was practicing high-speed maneuvers in a high-performance jet. She turned the controls for what she thought was a steep ascent, and she flew straight into the ground because she did not realize that she was flying inverted. Then we said this is a cautionary tale for our lives because we are constantly making decisions. We're constantly adjusting our finances, our, our children, our careers, and even though we may be meticulously following conventional wisdom, the results could be devastating to our lives and our relationships if we are not rightly oriented. Look, if Jesus is right, then conventional wisdom has us flying upside down, and however fast or effectively we're flying, we are in deep trouble and we don't know it. We must be right side up before we try to execute even the smallest maneuvers in our lives. Jesus makes it clear in the introduction that right side up living starts with surrendering our lives to God's control and making our connection to him the priority, as Javen said. That's what he means when he uses the phrase throughout his teaching, the kingdom of God, through the Beatitudes, which is what we call that introduction. We learn from Jesus that if we're in a place in life where we're weak or vulnerable, if we're poor in spirit, if we're meek, if we find ourselves in the middle in a peacemaking position, if we're being persecuted, if we're in a place in life where we're weak or vulnerable, we're actually in a good spot because the kingdom of God is available to us. It's right at our elbow in those moments. And many of you have experienced that. At the most trying moment in your life, you realize that God has done me a favor. I'm in a good spot because the kingdom is available to me. This week, we're going to look, be looking at the next section of the sermon, and it's a large section. This is really the, the starting point, the foundation for the ethic of Jesus. So we're going to begin, as I said, with this high-level introduction. And you need to know what Jesus does in this ethical section is he takes aim at and, and he blows apart what I would call legal religion, getting it all right, checkbox religion, do's and don'ts. You've got to dress like this, you can't dress like that, you can't do this, you've got to do that. He blows that apart. He also blows apart what I would call self-salvation religion. Oh, I've got to be a good person so I can make God like me. And I've got to go to church and I've got to do good things. That way, you know, God will like me and then things will go well in my life. As I said, we don't have time to dig into every part of this passage, but we don't need to. We're going to set the theme. We're going to look at the, the kind of 
framework for how this works, and, and you'll be able to look at this later and get it. All right, so I'm going to give you the interpretive format of Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48, and I'm going to read all of that. So uh, I'm not going to have you stand. We usually stand for, out of reverence for God's Word, but we won't today. And I'm going to encourage you today because I've given some titles to the various sections of this passage that are pertinent to what we're going to be talking about. So I'm going to encourage a number of you to just take out your phone, go to your browser, mygateway.life. The scripture is there, and it gives you the titles throughout this section. There's also a chart at the bottom of that that we're going to be referencing at the end of our time, which you're going to find fascinating, I think. Matthew 5, 17 through 48. If you've got a Bible, look along with me. It will be on the screen, but I would encourage you to look at it on mygateway.life. All right, so... Matthew 5, he begins with one of the most important verses, at least in this section, if not in the whole sermon, and this really is part of the, as I said, the interpretive framework or how we look at this or how we understand it. Jesus says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I think he says this in part because Jesus in his teaching and his manner of living, he offers so much freedom to the people who are used to doing religion as a self-salvation project or to the people who are used to doing legal religion. It's all about do's and don'ts. Jesus offers freedom, but he has to say, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. And in this profound statement, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have come to fulfill them. We'll talk in a few minutes about what that means. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, this is mind-blowing, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the professional law followers you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? And then he begins to give us some examples of what he means, and these are profound. So the first we have called irritation with one's associates. And this is what he does with it. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So notice he gives his alternative explanation in which he drives us deeper into ourself, and then he offers the way in which we can participate in that ethic. He goes on, Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still on your way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard it said, another example, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, he gives the alternative, and then he gives us a, a way to participate. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He goes on, another example. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except from sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. Think about her. Think about your spouse in this situation. And, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Next example, we call this wanting someone to believe something you say. Again, you've heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, don't even swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it's the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Do not use verbal coercion and manipulation. Just say what is. Next example, being personally injured. is a slight change here. Here Jesus gets into his love ethic. You've heard that it was said eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And finally, we'll call this having an enemy. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Makes sense. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's what he does. He causes his sun to shine on the evil and good, sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that, but be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, so let's be honest. Sometimes we really do get upside down in our thinking, and we spend time thinking about the good life and what the good life is, and it looks something like this. Show me some of those images, Dean. Home at last, and those of you who are listening at home, it's a, a mansion with a perfectly manicured lawn in front of it, much like your lawns right now, or this. This is, according to Forbes magazine, this is one of the coolest cars of 2020. It's the new Corvette, or this. Just a little something to organize my things, a Gucci bag for some of you ladies, or this, or men, or this, the yacht for family getaways, or finally this, spa day. It may, sometimes our images of the good life look like this, even though deep down inside we know this, doesn't, this stuff doesn't really lead to the good life. Sometimes it seems like it does, right? But we're, honestly, we are not this superficial. Not really, not most of the time anyway. We really do want to be good people. And I think this is a really significant part of what we mean when we imagine the good life for ourselves. We want to be good. We want our children to be good people. We want to live good lives. We want to be good neighbors. We want to be good citizens. We want to do good things. We want to have good families. We want to help others. We want to be the good guys in the story. It's part of how we were designed. Jesus knew that. So after the introduction, this is his first topic. What does it mean to be a good person, and how do we go about being one? That's what he's addressing here. What does it mean to be a good person? Now, you need to know, 
Of course, there is a long history of philosophers and ethicists and, and moralists talking about being a good person. It goes back, probably one of the first and most famous authors to address this was Plato. And Plato used a word consistently throughout his writing for what it means to be a good person. He used the Greek word dikaiosune. And that word kind of loosely translated would be something like doing the right things or being in the right place or being the right kind of person who does the right kinds of things. It is often in Plato's writings translated righteousness. And that word, even though Plato was four centuries before the New Testament, that word carried into the New Testament era with that same sense about it. In the time of Jesus, people were still using the word dikaiosune to refer to doing the right thing or being the right kind of person. And this is the language of the New Testament authors, except when Jesus talked about dikaiosune, righteousness, he blew our minds He approached the topic of righteousness from a completely different perspective than anyone ever had. Once again, radically inverting the whole concept. One of the profound implications of all that Jesus said about righteousness is this. Don't miss this. You can't be a good person by aiming at being a good person. This is often how we think about being a good person. I need to be more patient. I'm going to work on being more patient. But Jesus would suggest to us that you can't be a good person by aiming at being a good person. We just can't pull that off. You've heard it said, Jesus said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, you've got to scratch under the surface of that. That that straight-on approach is not going to work. It doesn't get you to real righteousness. That doesn't get you to dikaiosune. Think about how crazy that is. It had always been the assumption of philosophers and religious people that you aim at being a good person. The the only question was, what constitutes good deeds versus bad deeds, right? But Jesus said it doesn't work like that. Instead, according to Jesus, righteousness is an inside job. It's not about the externals at all. It's not about making myself behave in this way and not behave in that way. True righteousness is not about dressing this way and not dressing that way. That kind of legal religion is not the key to being a good person. In fact, it just doesn't work. True righteousness is an inside job. This is why Jesus over and over again uses illustrations to try to help us get that. He looked at a bunch of teachers and and, uh, Pharisees and he says, you guys are constantly washing the outside of the cup while the inside is still dirty. You drink from the inside of the cup. It looks like you get that. You've got to clean the inside. By the way, when you're cleaning the inside stuff, washes the outside gets clean naturally. He used another great illustration to a bunch of farmers. He said, you know what grows on an apple tree? Apples. You know what grows on a fig tree? Figs. You cannot make an apple tree into a fig tree by hanging figs on it. You have to plant fig to get a fig tree. Because a good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. Righteousness, the good life, is an inside job. And all the stuff that we do on the outside, whether it's all those silly accoutrements, which we kind of know don't really lead there, or us working really hard to try to be a good person, let's go to church because it'll be good for the kids. That's not the way to righteousness. We'll explain this in a second, but... I want to pause over an important observation. All this talk about righteousness being an inside job doesn't mean that our behavior doesn't matter. 
That's not the case. In the teaching of Jesus, God's desire for us to be good people who do good things does not go away. He does want us to be good people who do good things. The law is not abolished, remember? As Jesus said in verse 17. In fact, Jesus says those of us who follow him are going to be better than the professional law followers at following the law. How? Because I don't feel that in my own life. I've got to be honest. I'm not better at this than the professional law followers. I had breakfast this week with Jabin and another man, Bill Russell, who's going to be giving his testimony next week. Bill looked at us tearfully at one point over breakfast and said, when it comes, in ter- just in terms of being a Christian, I feel like a failure. How are we better than the professional law followers? How is that possible? How can we be gooder than the professional do-good guys? How does our righteousness, as Jesus said, surpass the teachers, and the Pharisees. So there are two critically important things for us to understand about this. The first one is subtle. The second one's obvious, and we, we just made this point a second ago, but I want to make sure we don't skip the first one. The first one is that our ultimate righteousness is based on Jesus. Notice in verse 17, he says that he will fulfill the law and the prophets. Not only did he get everything right in terms of how you do this and how you don't do that, he got it all right. But all of his work, his whole life, was fulfillment of the law and the prophets. They all said, someday a hero is coming. He was that hero. This guy is going to make everything right. He's in the business of making everything right. He's going to do it all. He's going to be the king of kings. He did it all, and he's the king of kings. And now... He applies effectively all of that to our lives if we believe in him. This is what Paul meant in Romans 5 when he said that Jesus' righteous acts justify us before God and gives us life. And Paul imagines a, a whole court scene and it's as if we come before God the judge and when God looks at us, he doesn't see us, he sees Jesus. So the first way in which we surpass the, the professional law followers is Jesus has fulfilled the whole law and the prophets, and he applies that to our lives. But the second way, equally important, by which we surpass the teachers and Pharisees in righteousness is by participating with God on the inside job. We're not going to worry about washing the outside of the cup because that doesn't work. To try really hard to not be prideful, to try really hard to not be lustful. We're going to concentrate on the inside. Remember, the Christian knows that righteousness is an inside job, and because the Christian knows this, they have a real shot at getting it right. We just need to allow it and to participate with God on the inside job that he's working. Toward this end, Jesus gives several examples, and we're just going to do one. Take murder, because it's Jesus' first example. I know when you came in this morning, you were thinking, I hope that he talks about murder today. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. Look, Jesus is not talking about the Ten Commandments here. If he had been, he would have said, it is written. Jesus is talking about legal religion, which says, he's talking about the guys who say, don't do this, do that. They've always been around. They were in my childhood, maybe in yours. I pray that none of you hear me saying that. Here's how you get it right. You don't murder anyone. Just stay away from that and you'll be righteous, at least in that regard, and and lead a good life. But many, many people are able to avoid murder and still they know something is missing. Well, now we know what's wrong. 
The Christian knows that we are no different from the murderer. Committing or not committing actual murder is really just a matter of being raised in the wrong circumstance or, or kind of environment or facing the wrong kinds of situation. That's all that separates me from murder. As a Christian, I know that I have murder inside of me as surely as any murderer on death row. Doing wrong is not a matter of some external action I commit or do not commit. Doing wrong is a matter of the heart. It comes from who I am. So the Christian knows because Jesus taught us that righteousness is an inside job. The good life starts inside of me. Here's what Jesus does. He forces us to face that truth. He drives us inside. He takes out a surgical knife and he exposes our motivations, our drives, who we really are. He pokes, he prods, and he shows us who we are because who we are is the key to righteousness and unrighteousness, not what we do. And once he's exposed who we are, he begins to change us at the deepest inner level. And then he requires us to participate in that change. He requires that we choose it, that we agree with his activity in our lives because he will not do it without us. He's a gentleman. So concerning murder, you've heard it said to people long ago, don't murder. But I say to you, first thing he says is, don't be angry. Because anger, the word anger here is related to the idea of swelling up. It grows, it's like a wave. Anger is, look, anger is dishonest. In the sense that, you may know, anger is a secondary emotion. Anger is our response really to hurt, frustration, disappointment. So in a sense, it's dishonest. It's also debilitating. It debilitates progress toward reconciliation. All progress is thwarted. And anger dominates the atmosphere. All other emotions are subjugated to anger. Anger is controlling. Don't be angry. He goes further. He's not finished. He dives in deeper. He says, don't even be contemptuous. The word raka is an Aramaic word which means you nobody. There's a sense in which contempt is worse than anger, isn't it? It's settled anger. It's anger that goes underground and decides that this person is not worth it. And then he goes further still, driving the knife deeper. He says, don't even call someone a fool. And in biblical thinking, this is saying of someone that they have utterly no value. This is the worst edge of contempt. This is utter dismissal. True righteousness demands far more than just not murdering. Then look at what Jesus does. After driving us inside, he asks us to participate. Anytime we see the front edge of murder, in other words, anytime we see the possibility for anger to percolate in us, for contempt to arise, for ultimate dismissal of another, we must address that. This is the key to the good life. This is the key to you participating. As soon as you see that anger welling up in you, you've got to participate. You need to go to them. He said. You see that a brother or sister has something against you, go to them. Because the end of this road is murder. You're already halfway there. You may be the kind of person who will never commit murder, but you're as good as any murderer on death row. Instead, go there. Choose it. My inside work, agree with it. You can't make yourself not a murderer. You can't make yourself righteous. That's my work. But you choose to participate in that inner work in what I'm calling you to, and I'll drive you there. And he says, make this the number one priority in your life. Do you get this? He says, if you're bringing your gift to the altar, that's an act of worship. Leave it. Leave worship. 
Don't worship me. Go to that brother or sister and make it right. And this becomes the pattern for Jesus' ethic. This is the true path to the good life. Allowing God to open us up and then following him when he asks us to participate in that inside work. Dean, give me the chart, if you would. This chart comes from a philosophy professor named Dallas Willard. And he's analyzed Jesus' ethic here in Matthew chapter 5. And I love this. We're not going to have time to talk about this today. The last two, the ethic of love, are slightly different. But the first four is so incredible. Irritation with one's associate. Old righteousness, don't murder kingdom righteousness, an intense desire for reconciliation. You allow the inside work and then you follow it. Sexual attraction, old righteousness, no sexual intercourse. Kingdom righteousness, don't even cultivate lust. Do whatever you need to do to stop that. Stop it at that point. It's an inside job. Unhappiness with marriage partner, old righteousness. If you're divorced, you know, do it the right way. Give them a legitimate pink slip. Kingdom righteousness no divorce under the old circumstances. And by the way, this phrase isn't up there, but by the way, you need to be thinking about your spouse in this. Think about them, what you're doing to them. Wanting someone to believe something. Keep your vows when you make some kind of word and you say, I swear, I promise I'm telling the truth. You better be telling the truth. Kingdom righteousness, don't ever do that. No verbal manipulation. Don't, why do you need to do that? This is constantly Jesus' question. Why are you doing that? What's going on? What, what's happening in you? Why is that coming out of you? Why are you talking too much, extrovert? What, what are you trying to get at? The religion of Jesus is not about getting the rituals right. It's not about making sure I don't do anything wrong. It's not about checking all the right spiritual boxes. It's not behaving the right way or not behaving the wrong way. We can't get at true righteousness like that. That will not ultimately give us the good life. That will not make us good people. The religion of Jesus is simply turning over my life to God's control, accepting Jesus as the governor of my life, following him both as the model for my life and then following him as he rearranges the inside of my life, agreeing with him as he reshapes me and remolds me to be like him. And through that process, I become the kind of person who does, really does righteous things. I become the kind of person for whom doing righteous things spills out of my life. I increasingly live the good life because it's just the kind of person I am. For all of you who are thinking, still asking, how is that possible? Let me end with a story. Jesus tells this story. We'll end with this. This is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's biography of Jesus. A wealthy young guy comes to him, and he says to Jesus, Something's missing. How do I get it? How do I have like what you have, Rabbi? And how do I know that I'm going to spend like eternity with God in that whole thing? It's interesting. Some ancient manuscripts, a few ancient manuscripts say that he was president of a consulting startup in Northern Virginia. And he goes to Jesus and he says, how do I have the good life? Because I've got a beautiful home in South Riding, in one of the nicer streets in South Riding. My kids, awesome. They're excelling at school. And we go to Gateway Community Church almost every Sunday. I think the pastor is drop-dead handsome. And I don't know why that was funny. And yet something's missing. And Jesus says, okay, well, just 
obey all of the law. Well, I'm, I've done that, and I'm doing that. Oh, and Jesus is being provocative, right? And Jesus says, oh, okay, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Wait, what? Yeah. And he walks away sad. And Jesus turns to his disciples, and some of the ancient manuscripts say this, and he says to them, it is harder for a rich person, somebody like that lives in South Riding, it's harder for them to enter the kingdom of God than it is to drive a, an 18-wheeler with a big load on the back through that new Starbucks in Ashburn in the drive. And one of his disciples says, I can't even get my Lexus SUV through that drive through It'd be impossible to get a big 18-wheeler. Yeah. What are you talking about, Jesus? If that guy's not living the good life, who is? It's not impossible. And Jesus says, not possible for you, but it's possible for God. It is an inside job. Living the good life is an inside job with you turning the controls of your life every day over to God. Lord, we are aware this morning how much we need you. We are far from the people that we want to be. And that's just by judging by our own conscience. This is not even standing under your gaze. We need your help, and this morning we ask for it. Lord, I want to especially pray right now for every heart who you have stirred this morning in some way. I pray that you will be unrelenting, that you will grab hold of us and charge us to participate with you, to jump in, to join your work, the inside work, to say yes, to agree whatever it is that you're asking of us. Hear us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thank you for being here. Have a great Sunday.